Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. All right, welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, it's a big day. Do you know what day it is today? It's Canada Day. Yes, I knew you'd get it. Pretty excited about that. I haven't drank in a Kokanee or a Molson or a Labatt's Blue today. I don't know if I will. I should probably either go to Moxie's or Maple Leaf, but I haven't made it there yet. Are you going to? Maybe not, but I'll be thinking of you. Thank you. I might use the metric system a little bit today. (laughs) I don't know. Is there any hockey on tonight? If there is, it'll be the Montreal Canadiens and the Tampa Bay Lightning, which I don't even know what it's because it's NHL playoffs. Canada related. It is. So, you know, maybe maybe I'll even, you know, turn that on for a second or two and then realize I don't understand what's going on. And Yeah. Well, you know, in actually talking about sports, and I hate to bring this up, but why would you? The sweep at home after winning 11 games straight or something like what? And they're not even a great team, Matt. Can you please tell the audience what happened? I don't want to make excuses for anybody, but uh, here's everyone I'm ready to blame. <laughs> okay. Our bullpen is horrible and has to get better if they're going to actually like do things in the playoffs. They're just bad. Now they're tired and bad because, you know, it's been like a 20 game straight, no rest yeah. deal. But so like part of the argument is, oh, well, they're tired. Well, I don't know. I think you'd still hit a ball every once in a while. <laughs> right. And, you know, I mean, sometimes this stuff just happens. But I always have questions about the way Dusty Baker handles pitchers and baseball in general so i've and heard he's really like so i was listening to a podcast i listened to astros locked on astros and i couldn't tell if they were joking or not but is he a really softy or is he completely the opposite because i was kind of getting both vibes and i don't follow it nearly as much as you do but i mean he's considered a softy i mean he's known as a guy who sticks up for his players which i think was sort of with the whole scandal why he was brought in uh, okay and i mean you know the post game stuff it's just he's a you know, is like a grandpa. <laughs> but okay, I think he's way old school, but he does a lot of things where you're just like, this doesn't make any sense. And I can't find a way to make it make sense. And you'll ask him like, well, you know, every, you know, be like, Abraham Toro is like tearing it up. It's like, maybe I'll bench him. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, really? And it's like, well, you know, don't want him to hurt his wrist. or It's like, that's not what we're worried about right now. We need to spark. Yeah. So there's just there's stuff like that that's extremely frustrating. I mean, it'll come back around. It it always does, but the product on the field is a little tough to watch. Yeah, but I mean, you, you get win streaks, losing streaks. I mean, it feels like they come in clutch when we're playing teams that are strong, and then when the teams aren't that strong, it's like where what happened? It's like they, I don't know, it's like they rise to the occasion, but then when the occasion's not there, they kind of just like take their foot off the gas. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's definitely a little bit of that. It'll be interesting to see. The main thing is you see, see this every year, like, You've also got to be hot in October. Right. It's You have to be good enough to make it into the playoffs, but it's a long season. And then once you get into the playoffs, you need to be playing like your best is out there. And sometimes teams just, you know, they were good earlier in the year and they look a little lethargic. So right. yeah. I hope the All-Star break does them some good. I hope we make some moves on some pitchers. I hope a few of those things happen so that I don't have to lose my mind. <laughs> right. When is Bregman supposed to come back? Do you know? Well, it's one of those, This is I love this in baseball. They say, well, he's ahead of schedule, but we don't have a timetable. <laughs> Wait, what? <It's> like, <laughs> okay, so yeah. yeah. Anyways. Tough to say, obviously. 
Yes, but mm. I mean, he'll be. I think they're just wait till after the All Star break with soft tissue stuff. He doesn't get it all healed up. Yeah, like you said, because I mean, October is quite a ways away and a few games away, so it's definitely play it uh, somewhat safe. But obviously, make sure you go into October as healthy and as strong as you can. So. We'll see, but yeah, I found that crazy that they got swept. But eh, anyway, I figured you'd have a good take on it. Umpires, do you think that played a major role? Because there's some controversy there. Yeah, so if you know an umpire's name, they are probably horrible. Um, <laughs> that's right, they that's, don't get too much recognition. There's like, there's like three or four that I like know, or I'm like, I hear their name, and I'm like, oh, he's an umpire. And it's like, Angel Hernandez is by far the worst. And even okay. like Sports Illustrated does anonymous ballot with players every year and they rank him. Yeah. And he's always the worst, but like <laughs> they won't fire him. And like, but all of there, there are like three or four that are really bad. And the one last night, right? like for sure, there are several that need to go. I'm sure there's plenty of very talented, qualified people that could replace someone who's almost like they're trying to be bad. Right. So, yes, it plays a role, but there's always the like, I think the difference is Angel Hernandez tries to like pick fights with players. Like he tries to <laughs> really? bring himself into it oh, man. and antagonize them. And so like that's sort of more taking sides. But if you're like really, really bad at like calling a strike zone, if you could at least be a little consistent with how bad you are, both right. teams deal with it, right? That's true. Level the playing field. That'd be nice. So kind of random, but when they get into playoffs and and obviously thing when things get like close to the World Series. Do they select the best umpires in the league to umpire those games, or is it kind of a pool and it's a mix? Like, do you know how they select? Because I, I that that plays a pretty a pretty big role. I would feel like I honestly don't know the exact setup. Someone I'd have to look it up because okay. I know they have a structure to it. All right. I know is Angel Hernandez still ends up <laughs> still ends up in games. there somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but uh. he, I think he sued the league a few years ago because he he was like never allowed to do a World Series or something, and it's like. Huh. For very good reason. Right. Well, very yeah. bad at this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it keeps hanging on somehow. Yeah. Well, before we get talking about one, I just want to wish Missy Elliott a happy birthday. It's her 50th birthday today, too. So in case you were wondering. Is she the misdemeanor? Missy misdemeanor Elliott? That could Do be. Do I have that right? I don't know. She's. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. But yeah, it's her birthday today. And so Many she's more 50. great years. Yeah. Yeah. She probably listens to this, too. Like, yes. While she's counting her lots of monies. But anyway, so we wanted to wish her a happy birthday. Of course, that's important. So. Moving forward, drilling fluids. Matt, this was certainly your idea. So why don't you go ahead and, and pitch the topic today? Because it's a good one. So what does a mud engineer actually do? <laughs> right. And we assume that we have a lot of mud engineers listening to this. But I think those of you that are mud engineers, you don't need it. Please don't you know, stop listening right now. I just want you to think about what other people think that you really do. Right. Because quite frankly, I think, they think you take a mud check and then go play in the trailer for, you know, 12 to 14 hours. Right. And a good mud engineer, an AES quality mud engineer, mm-hmm. there's a heck of a lot to it. And it's not just burning a retort and checking rheology. Mm-hmm. And it is woefully underappreciated. And I will personally say this, that I am always trying to figure out a way when we teach our customer schools, because what do we do? We go through mud properties and how you read a mud report and how you do a mud check. And then I think we're almost programming our own customers to think, oh, so all it is is these like measurements and then you interpret what's going on. Right. And then it, it's like, well, but I, I mean, half the stuff, if you explained, if you, or if you walked around a well site or worked on a, a rig site, you would know, I mean, my gosh, it's not, these guys aren't sleeping 15 hours a day. Right. Um, Unless you're offshore sometime. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> and you've got to have a night guy. And right. It's a long story. It is. And, and for the purpose of this episode, and maybe we do one for an offshore mud engineer, but for the purpose of this exercise, we're going to describe what a mud engineer does on land. Yes. Far less ice cream. <laughs> yeah. And gumbo. On land and, and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure. Pool, working out on some jailhouse gym. Anyway, but that would be a good one, I think, doing an offshore mud engineer because there's yeah. a lot actually to it as well. But with that being said, I, you know, and we kind of outlined it in, in terms of just, you know, starting off from the beginning of the day, you know, in a normal day to day drilling operation, the day starts and, you know, if, if things are going well, mud engineers, they do sleep, but it's not very long. And so, you know, kind of starting off at the beginning of the day, if, if, if the mud engineer is fortunate enough to get some sleep, hopefully it's through the night. Sometimes it's not. If you're cementing, everyone knows out there cement jobs happen throughout the night, but Assuming we're drilling away and, you know, the mud report needs to get in by, say, six o'clock. Normally, and again, through my experience, other mud engineers may argue, I would get up anywhere around four to four thirty. That's kind of, you know, that's somewhat before a lot of the account managers and drilling engineers get up looking at reports. Some are crazy and get up before then, but not many. Well, mostly it's I mean, it's all driven by that morning report, which right. most of the time for I think for us, we'd say was six o'clock. Yeah. On almost every rig. Yeah. And so you need a mud check, all all that stuff done by six o'clock with everything dialed in and the drilling consultant or company man, whatever you want to call them, like ready to go for when they have to call their boss. And so 4.30 is about as late as you can go before you can like, you know, get a cup of coffee, walk out to the pits, get your first sample and and get rolling, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And most most folks, they jump out of their recliner or if they're fortunate enough to have a nice bed, yeah, they get on, throw some coffee, some lot maybe drink an energy drink, but they're out there you know, within probably 20 minutes, half an hour, getting out there, doing rounds, grabbing samples, you know, checking screens, making sure there's no leaks or anything crazy, losses, whatever. Even before that, I mean, again, I would sleep right next to the Payson or Totco or whatever we had on the rig on the recliner. I personally never slept in a bed. It gave me, it stressed me out. So I wouldn't, mm. I'd actually sleep better in a recliner knowing someone could walk in and like yell at me or I could like open my eyes for a, a minute or two and make sure like we're still drilling and then go back to sleep. But yeah, kind of check pace on, you know, unless, you know, if they're making a trip or something you didn't know about, again, you walk out, get your sample, talk to the Derek hand, house things, go to the dog house. So you're outside, you know, and, and getting the sample, checking the screens, make sure there's no, nothing crazy going on with your shakers. You could be outside for, you know, anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour. Get your sure. mud check or get your mud sample and then back to the lab you go. Yes. And so you start your mud check, which I'm pretty confident that, and I would say that it would be harder for me to do this right now. But when I was a mud engineer, I'd probably get a mud check in and what would you say? 45 minutes to an hour with, you know, which, you know, preheat the jacket on the high temp, get the retort ready to, you know, yeah. all of the stuff that having all your consumables in the right place, like you could get a full mud check in, in less than an hour. And, you know, while you go, well, you get your numbers, you're writing them in your tally book or just punching them straight in on the computer. I like to have my tally book in case anybody asks later. <laughs> right. But you could basically kind of start your report while you're doing all the other stuff. Yeah, that's pretty much as you kind of like you said. And, and a lot of times too, I'd plug my stuff in and run outside. And then when it's back in, you're ready to go. And like you said, throw your, you know, throw your retort on this and that about an hour, you know, give or take. But yeah, doing your, you know, doing your report during that time certainly is way more efficient than doing one after the other. But 
yeah, you're kind of doing that. And then like you said, most of the time, and again, this differs depending on the account, the client, whoever, but like, let's just assume for all extensive purposes, 6am, you need to get it in. So you, you knock that out, you know, then after that, assuming everything's going good, you wouldn't necessarily call the account manager or the field supervisor, but you know, and then after that, you'd typically maybe grab some breakfast, kind of get your day going. Once you knocked out your critical tasks for the morning, you know, that brings you to about six, seven thirty. You'd maybe talk to your account manager, like I said, or field supervisor, engineering manager, depending on how things are set up. But in between, and again, depending on when the rig crew starts their day, sometimes it's six to six, sometimes it's five to five, sometimes it's seven to seven. I mean, it really just, but you get the idea you would attend the safety meeting. And so, you know, Matt, would you typically attend the safety meetings in the mornings or? Yeah, I mean, I would say that I always tried to attend both. Yeah. Like there's, you know, morning and night crew change. Like I never knew exactly what was, I don't say I never knew exactly what was going on, but I wasn't in the field long enough that I had a really tight grasp on like A follow, you know, B follows A and those kinds of, and so I really wanted to hear every step they were thinking about so that yeah. I could plan out treatments or movements or where whatever especially like not only if i'm what i need to be doing in between operations but when i would have access to the derrick hand if something else was going to happen that's a really good point and that's why it is important to attend these meetings and and again the more comfortable and the more wells you've drilled you have a pretty solid idea of what the next 12 24 48 hours looks like because keep in mind mud engineers really don't physically do anything other than grab a sample on a rig. So anything that you want done requires a rig hand. And yes. so those rig hands don't work for you. <laughs> so yes. that is, is a very good point in such in a, in a way that the more you can sort of get an idea of what the, that day or 12 hours or six hours looks like, then you, you can get to the Derek hand and, you know, please, Mr. Derek Hand, can you do this for me? I know you got about 8,000 other things that your driller that who you work for does or wants you to do. But when you do have some spare time, can you mix all this stuff? <laughs> and that, I mean, you remember in a previous episode where we talked about like different ways we would try and build those relationships with our Derek Hand. Yeah. Knowing that like, I can't make you do any of this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I really need you to. And it's, it's so true is you're, you're sort of at the mercy of that schedule. And and yeah. I, I think we brought this up before too. Like a really good Derek hand can kind of think ahead of you. They have some idea of yeah. what's going on. And then there's others that if, if they don't like you, they can intentionally wait to be told everything. Right. Or um, if they're inexperienced. And that was one of the challenges that I saw is like guys were moving up or, you know, ladies maybe for that matter, but every great hand I worked with was a male. They were moving up so fast that they would, you know, they'd be on a rig, you know, eight months ago and all of a sudden they're a derrick hand and like they barely know drilling operations so then they're lean like they don't know to come get you when a truck shows up or if they need to transfer volume around and so not only i mean if you're fortunate enough to get a derrick hand who like you can tell them to do something and they just go automatically do it that's a blessing or at least it was when i was in the field oh for sure and, and i mean having worked on rigs overseas mm, oh you yeah think about Jeez. language barriers and and some of these other things it's a really important relationship and i think everybody who's listening probably understands that it's just under knowing when you can actually do something because it's not going to happen on your time right no exactly and yeah if you think you know, and, and again, I remember, you know, again, because I, I worked as a roughneck and a lot of times I wouldn't deal with the drilling or the mud engineer, but the Derek hand would talk to the mud engineer and then the mud engineer, you know, would then give the Derek hand a treatment and up there and, and maybe they do this down here again, 
it would be like, okay, you got, you know, five different products to mix. I want Enerzan mixed at four minutes a sack. I want this gel or whatever, this polymer mixed at a minute a sack. And they had it down into where like I was having to time it and do this and do that. But I was assuming nothing else was going on. So like, you know, if it's all of a sudden you need to mix a pallet over four circulations, yeah, that sounds good when you have nothing else going on. But a lot of times that pallet gets dumped in as fast as you can so you can just move on about your day. Sure. Oh, absolutely. And I, I mean, yeah, so we have some idea of what's going to happen during the day. Right, little rabbit hole. Goes, goes to plan. Yeah. And I mean, the safety meeting, look, you know, safety meetings, you, you discuss operations, you discuss anything involving how to do them safely. You might review some JSAs with everybody to assess, you know, the steps required and any safety issues or risk there and how you're going to mitigate them. And I mean, so then it's kind of like the the rig crew you know, let's say it's the day crew because we're talking about the morning. They're everybody's sort of released to the wild to start getting to work, right? Yep. So y'all go, and basically at that point in time, you're probably going to do a round and and walk the pits and and kind of check on everything again, right? Yep, that's exactly. And so again, that could bring you to maybe eight thirty, nine o'clock. Well, then you go out and and again, you know, you're out there, you're looking at screens, you're talking to the derrick hand, maybe talking to the roughneck. You may have trucks coming in and out of location. You know, you're checking diesel levels, you're checking water levels, anything that the fluid touches, which is pretty much everything on surface, you're doing a good evaluation on to make sure everything is is intact, there's no leaks. I then would go to the doghouse and go spend a bunch of time with the driller and the directional driller and say, hey, what's your torque look like? How's your, you know, pickup slack off? How's your connections? Anything tight? And, you know, and really just trying to get a sense of what's going on subsurface. Because not only do you have to deal with everything on surface, which is a lot, you do want to be engaged with what's going on subsurface because that's where the whole, I mean, that's where the magic happens. Yes. And I would add that normally, I don't know how to say this nicely, so but I'm <laughs> going to try and be diplomatic. Normally, if the directional driller is up there, you can start asking some questions and how they respond gives you a pretty good idea of if they know what they're doing. Yeah. And to me, that was always one where if there's going to be a tool issue or something like that, like... I want to be ready and I want to be a step ahead of them because yeah. a lot of times they're going to point fingers at the mud first. And if I already know this, this person isn't very experienced or doesn't know exactly what they're doing, I want to be able to stay ahead of that. No, that's a good point. So that was another thing about hanging out in the doghouse. I think it's also just building relationships with the whole crew. You talk to the driller, you talk to some of these other folks, they're great people. And you build some of that camaraderie by just spending a few minutes up there and talking about work, talking to them about their lives yep. while you're learning about operationally what's going on. And every once in a while you'll overhear something and you'll be like, oh, you know what? Let me, that was actually a little different than we talked about this morning. Let me, let me run down and mm-hmm. go get a few things going while I've got the time. Yeah. And one thing too, and, and I know we have a whole sort of podcast episode dedicated to relationship building, but to touch on, you know, the money engineer and, and really trying to find time for the folks on the rig to do the work that they're trying to get executed. It's important to build that relationship with the drilling or the let's say drilling engineer. It's the only thing I have in my head. The driller to where then if, if there's trust built there and you need something, he's more willing to let his derrick hand or his floor hand go off and help you out. So yeah, again, a lot of time spent in the doghouse. You know, it's not all business. There's a lot of, you know, storytelling and life story stuff. And then, you know, but that could bring you to 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And by that time you've been up since four, you're probably getting a little hungry since breakfast. So, you know, if, again, things are going well, shake hands, high five, drilling away, and, and you may, you know, get your way back and, and 
fry up some bologna sandwiches or something. Yeah, or something edible. I mean, it's really up to you. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So again, that burns up quite a few hours in, you know, in the morning. And then next thing you know, it's lunchtime and you grab yourself a bite and maybe check, you know, the news channel, see what's going on in the world, maybe call a loved one. And I mean, from there, then it's back on the pits and you're making rounds and doing another mud check. And, it, and so it's kind of repeat. But yeah, Matt, I mean, so, you know, from that point, where do we go? I mean, I just think about, and granted, we're we're summarizing all this stuff. It's like, no, I'm not twiddling my thumbs by the shakers for three hours. Like, there's there's a lot of those steps where, okay, I made the rounds. I've maybe taken a quick check on anything if it's appearing different, but I'm looking at all the solids control equipment. I'm talking to everybody. I'm seeing how we're making whole. Like you said, you know, checking the pace on or the the EDR. But the other thing I got to do too is I got to make sure I'm at, lined up with the warehouse delivery tickets. I've got to reconcile all that paperwork, any mm-hmm. or, any orders I need to make to re-up on products. And even, you know, special preference of mine, depending on when I actually have to report inventory, mm-hmm. I like checking inventory during the daylight. And <laughs> at least important. having a very strong confidence level that everything is right. There's not a pallet missing that I've found everything. And then I'll kind of double check it again, knowing what we should have used right. for my report. But Sometime before before dinner, I'll be trying to gather some of that information. Yeah, no, and that's important too. I mean, it's you know staying up with all the tickets because you have trucks coming in and out of location with your material. Maybe they're delivering material, maybe they're returning material, depending on you know where you're at in the well. But a lot of times in the afternoon, and it could be a morning. Like again, we we're laying out a day that you know we're familiar with. We'll explain how this completely can get imploded on, or it can be you know completely just mixed together, but. Yeah, again, you know, there's you, you could spend two or three hours working on paperwork and, you know, reading mud programs and coming up with, you know, planning and, and getting treatments together after you do your afternoon mud check. So, you know, again, assuming everything's going well, you could spend some time in the trailer and, and while the TV might be on, chances are you're multitasking and returning phone calls or texts from people in the office because they're wondering what's going on. And, you know, because a lot of times they don't have pace on or anything and a drilling engineer might call them and say, Hey, we need this or why that? And then all of a sudden you're calling your mud engineer. And so you're, you know, you're having to juggle this stuff on location, juggle your paperwork, juggle phone calls or emails from the, from, from town. Next thing you know, you got 15 delivery tickets sent to your inbox. So you got to get those signed by the company, man. So yeah, again, a lot going on. And that oftentimes, you know, between that and a mud check and answering questions on location or from whoever else that could get you pretty close to dinner time. And at that point, yeah, cook some steaks if you can, gumbo, depending if you're from Louisiana or not. But that, you know, you can tell through throughout the day, that's quite a bit of work involved. And it's, you know, starting at four and let's just say you're having dinner around six or seven o'clock. I mean, that's more than, you know, your average banker's hours. So you're already putting in a day's work and the work is not done yet. No, because I mean, we got to get, we do too much checks a day at least, right? And of that's course. not, and when we say too much, that's what goes on the mud report. So I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, you're only checking rheology twice a day. And it's like, no, if there's anything going on, I will pull, pull a sample. I'm not going to write a formal check unless I'm unless there's something else. It's like, wow, mud looks a little thick. All right, I'm going to check rheology. Right. Oh, no, I'm just not paying attention or I'm not the mud engineer I thought I was. Rheology <laughs> is exactly where it, where it should be. Yeah. Never mind. You know, so you're all, you, you can spot check anything, even, you know, having checking pH, the flow line or whatever, or are we taking a little bit of gas? Should I start getting some treatment in for that? Mm-hmm. Any of those things. 
but that f- that other check in the evening is a full formal check. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to the, you know, things repeating themselves in the morning, you catch that sample, make sure you know what's going on, get, you know, everything cooking. And, it, you know, it might take you an hour and sort of depending this one, I feel like there's a little bit less pressure depending on when everybody meets and talks about things. But as long as everything's going normal, this one, you normally just kind of, I would, you know, print out, go hand out my mud reports mm-hmm. to different folks who needed them up in the shack or wherever, and then, you know, kind of talk to the drilling consultant. But I think actually did we, one thing I left out of that is in the midst of all that too, we're on the night crew. So we did a safety meeting in the evening too, as well. Right. So we discussed evening operations, same rigmarole, you know, these safety meetings, they, I felt like they usually only lasted, you know, 15 to 30 minutes was typical. Yeah. I've seen them go longer, but you have to remember that there's another crew waiting for you. So that was more or less kind of, you know, the handover, but you're doing your mud checks, you're you're doing your inventory. I mean, by then, for me, I'm looking at maybe like eight o'clock at night. Yeah. And so, you know, at that point, assuming nothing's going on, I want to sleep when I can. Right. So, and you're looking at operations trying to figure out like, okay, can I sleep right here? You know, mm-hmm. we're coming out of the hole. All right. What does that mean? You know, how, how much time do I have if I could lay down before we get you know, any of those strategies where it's like, there's nothing critical going on where I need to be out there or looking for something. Right. And that goes back to your point of like sleeping on the recliner. Like I would wake up multiple times in the middle of the night, just in a panic and then go (laughs) run over and look. Yeah. And, and I was like, okay, everything's normal and go back to bed. But I was always afraid that, yeah, like I was going to get I wanted to get out of bed before someone told me I had to get out of bed. Yeah, yeah. That's so, that's exactly, yeah. And I'm sure everyone out there that's been a mud engineer or is a mud engineer can identify with that. But yeah, it's, you know, and, and I don't know how or why, but I think I spent a lot of, I mean, I know I spent a lot of time outside and I was always good at, you know, BSing with everybody to where, especially when the night crew came on, because it's like it was 6, 6.30, you know, because it's one thing that, you know, they make their relief. And they're talking about the rig and, you know, all the mechanics and whatever, this, that, and the other. Well, then, like, the Derek hands, they may say, oh, yeah, we got a, you know, 13-pound mud and a vis of a 35 or whatever that looks like. But they're not talking about mud that much. So then you have to go and, you know, reiterate to the night Derek hand, okay, here's what we did today. Here's what we were mixing. Here's what I'm targeting. Okay, tonight when I do hopefully get down, like, we need to be monitoring this. And if this happens, we need to do this. And... And and then again, you may be kind of retraining that night Derek hand for the next 12 hours. Yeah, and- you are managing that crew. Because it's like the assumption is everybody's talking to each other and handing over, but there's so many other moving parts. Right. And I mean, most of these guys, like mud is probably the most abstract thing they encounter. So when they say, you know, go move that pipe over there, <laughs> that's one thing. Right. Versus like, well, man, I think he wants me to add this many sacks. Like if it goes anything beyond that. You know, and that's why I trying to write down, you know, treatment sheets or, you know, really clear communication and, and reiterating those things, assuming no one has talked to anyone yep. is always your safest bet. So that's a day in the life of a mud engineer. But Justin, I think we left a few things out. I think we left a lot of <laughs> things out because yeah. how many of those days do we actually get versus something happening in 24 hours on a rig that requires you to stop what you're doing and do something else. Yeah, that's exactly. And I'm sure a lot of mud engineers out there listening that are like, wow, there's so many other things that 
never go to plan. So <laughs> that has, you have to consider that and account for that during your day. I mean, you know, the most common I would imagine, and then again, through my experience is just losses. You yes. know, you're, you're drilling and oh, you did your afternoon check. Everyone's happy. And you know, we're turning to the right, as they say. And then all of a sudden you, you start seeing some people scramble and you look at the pace on, or you're outside and you see, you know, again, I always used to use like a nut with a, some sash cord to kind of monitor pit levels and okay, well, there's a foot gap. Now there's two feet and oh, we're losing mud. <laughs> this oh, is not dear. good. Yeah. yeah. So then of course, you know, unless you're experienced, you're, unless you're, unless you're kind of prepared for it or whatever, all of a sudden this just doesn't happen. Well then, okay. Losses. Oh, report it. Call the company rep and okay. Driller this. And oh, okay. What's the treatment sheet? And and then you got to spend who knows how long coming up with a treatment sheet. And a lot of times in the mud program, I'll say, okay, you know, if you're losing at 10 barrels an hour, here's a typical treatment. And so, and then but, the directional guy will tell you that it's going to plug his tools no matter what it right. is. Right. And it's like no, nothing and more then, than five pounds per barrel. Fine. And it's like, <laughs> wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, so you've got to get everybody on the same page. And even though you wrote it in the program and everybody supposedly agreed to it, <laughs> we're back to square yeah. one agreeing on it. And and obviously that could be better. I would I would also add now, this is a mud engineer who's living on the well site. If you're doing drive ups where you just drive up and do a mud check once a day or whatever, fun fact, if you're watching at least three rigs, they all go on losses at the same time. You never have one rig with a problem if you're doing drive-up service. Right. So, that's, so that's just that's just a little aside. But losses tend to be, you know, unexpected. Or if they are expected, we've already got a plan in place. And you don't know what your loss rate is. Or if you really want to do what you want to do. Or the directional people are going to allow you. So that's like one big, like, that's where, you know... Thank goodness we have the team that we do where yeah. you know that you're not going to stay up for 80 hours, that somewhat your field supervisor will come in. Someone will make sure you can get some sleep. We'll get you some help, you know, but we're going to get through this and we're going to make sure everybody's on the same page doing it. But it, it can be a very disruptive event. Right. And when it happens, you never really know. Like if you're someone who's who's very like routine and structured, that completely throws everything off. And it could be anywhere from an hour of, okay, getting the derrick hand lined out, getting the pallets to the hopper, you mix it, you you know pump a few sweeps, all of a sudden, okay, good, like, well, you're you getting returns. Or it could be a half a day ordeal, or it could be days, you know, but I would say, you know, in the areas we're drilling and, and what we know about these areas, anywhere from three to five hours, normally you can kind of get things under control. And again, I know there's going to be arguments for that, but... Again, to put some sort of but like frame of reference. It, as an account manager in Houston, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you can confidently say that it takes a mud engineer <laughs> yeah. who's out there by himself three right. to five hours. Sorry, I just, I only say it's that true. because we want to ridicule ourselves a little bit in as much as yeah. Justin and I both used to do this, but we also, our point is to emphasize what you field guys do. And we know it's not easy and certainly like, yeah, probably three to five hours. I would say at least you know what you're going to do. Right. It may be like, okay, we can't cure this thing or okay, we've we've done a treatment. We at least, we got a way forward. It doesn't mean you've cured the losses. We do not cure losses within three to five hours every time. Although we'd love, you know, that would be pretty impressive if we could. Right, yeah. But you know what? Let's do another one. How about some pit management during a displacement or a cement job? And cement jobs you mentioned only happen at night, pretty much, right? Right. So That's, when you're when you're trying to lay back in the recliner that has 18 springs poking your back, yeah, you don't always get to lay down during the night because you're probably outside on the pits, typically at the shakers when you're doing a cement job. 
doing the displacement. So there's a lot of fluids management going on at that time. And so, yeah, you basically are outside and you can't, I mean, I guess you could, but you wouldn't last that long on a rig if you went to go lay down during a displacement or a cement job. If you've done it a thousand times and the company man likes you enough, he may allow you to go lay down for a bit, but chances are that's not happening. Right. I mean, there's, think about the risk of not only the well control of where are my fluids right now, but the other part of it is potential waste if you don't, you know, divert at the right time Mm -hmm. or, you know, even the environmental mess of a spill, you, you know, put too much fluid in a tank. Yeah. And so displacements are critical. They're pretty critical operations. And even though you're mostly telling people when to churn valves and backing up other people's stroke counts and calculations and all that kind of stuff, you're the one usually writing the plan. You're Mm -hmm. the one making sure it's being executed. And so it's probably something you're going to be up for. Yeah, no, most definitely. And so, and, and granted too, you know, if you do it throughout the night and you do your displacement, there may be a few hours here and there that you can catch some rest, but you know, it throws off your day and you know, again, you're kind of back to scrambling. Okay, well, I spent the last eight hours outside or however much long it was. Okay, well, now I got to line up logistics and okay, now I got to consider what's going on or ticket sign, this, that, and the other, you know, and then meanwhile, making sure the mud in the pits and the mud in the frack tanks are still, you know, in the right condition to where, you know, you know what you're, what you're dealing with, you know, again, so a cement job and then, you know, rig move, you know, a lot of times you're allowed to stay on location. Sometimes they want you to go home to save some money, but, you know, coordinating logistics with, you know, thousands of barrels of mud on location, you know, however many pallets of material you have on location and dealing with the warehouse and setting up your rig file. And cause it, you know, a lot of time is, you know, closing out wells, starting new wells. Yeah. You do spend a lot of time in the trailer house, but it is a lot of paperwork and, you know, we're not quite in the era where everything's digitalized and automated. We still do a lot of manual labor. Well, there's so much physical reconciliation as well. You know, I I think, I mean, keep in mind that as much as we would love to automate and we have automated a number of these processes, you still have to reconcile physical counts, either what was sent back to the warehouse or what was, you know, used on location. That has to be done manually. There's no magical way to explain that unless you look into why they don't match. Mm. And then the other part of it is, you know, some of this is financial reporting for, you know, for everybody where it's like, this is, this is what your final cost was. So it's all going to be right. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that have to be done to make that work. And so, you know, and that's not only that, but like, you know, if you're doing the recap, if you're doing the lessons learned, you've got to polish all this stuff up because you're about to move to another well. Yeah. Yeah. So those are some things for sure that in a rig move, it's, it's not, well, the Derek's down. I don't have anything to worry about. Right. Yeah. There, there's a lot of, I mean, certainly it's, there's downtime, but there's, it's very busy just with the admin side of it as well. So yeah. And so again, you know, that'll throw off your schedule too. I mean, you know, you may not be getting, you know, your, <laughs> the sleep or the schedule you want, but I mean, you're at the mercy of the, of the rig schedule. So you figure it out. And then, you know, during the day, it'd be nice to have people bring you food and bring you drinks and bring you everything you need, which sometimes if you've got a nice field supervisor, if you're fortunate enough to even have a field supervisor, they can help bring you stuff. But you do have to run to town every once in a while. And a lot of times it's other people at other people's requests. You mean that the drilling superintendent or the drilling consultant doesn't just go into town on their own whenever they want? I mean, some do, but a lot of times it's a lot easier to say, hey, mud engineer, go to town. I need this. Yes, sir. I will get on it. I will drop everything I'm doing and get out there ASAP. And I'll bring you back (laughs) 
it's funny back in the day and back home in Canada, we they would always want the Calgary Sun. I would say the same thing. Like <laughs> there, there was one other one that was like I had to bring six of the Calgary Sun, and then there was another one I had to bring. I can't remember what it was, but there were like seven. I like should, the first day I showed up the rig. Company man was like, "You're gonna every day you come here from now on, you're gonna need to bring." And it was like, okay, <laughs> but in a way, if you think about it, the well site consultant probably doesn't want to leave location for a number of reasons, not just selfish, but like yeah. there's operations that they are ultimately responsible Especially for. Especially if there's only one company rep. If there's yes. two, that changes because then obviously they have their 12 hours off, which they're still probably trying to get you to do stuff anyways. But yes. But then the other part of it is it is sort of an opportunity because it was like, hey, the person in charge told me to go to town. Right. I'll do some errands for you know him or her and I'll do something for myself. So it's not all bad when you're told by somebody else to go. Right. It sort of actually gives you permission that otherwise, if you went into town when you thought was a good time and you got permission, you might be led to feel guilty. Like, well, why'd you go? Yeah. So anyways, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. It was always too like, and I don't know why. I mean, I'm sure the company reps, you know, respected it, but I always felt like I had to ask. It was almost like I was asking my dad if I could go to town. Like, hey, Mr. Coming Man. So I am completely out of food. Do you mind if I run to town? And of course, they would never just give you an easy answer. Say, yeah, we'll see in a bit. It was always like, well, what happens if this happens? And uh, are you sure you, you were there two weeks ago? Or you know what I mean? Like there's always you got to give the guy a hard time a little bit. So, of course, it was always like asking permission. OK. And then, of course, when you build again, this is just, you know, an example. But if you if you're on a rig for a long time, you build a reputation, you build trust. You don't have to ask every time you go to town, but it's out of respect to, Hey, I'm going to town. If you need something holler, I'm not gonna be my trailer. But yeah. So again, like, you know, again, kind of put, throws a bit of a wrench in your schedule. If you got to go to town and you know, it's, let's say the weather's bad or whatever, say you're two hours away from town. Like, you know, this takes time and, and, you know, time spent away from the rigs. And when you get back, you got some catching up to do. And, you know, if all of a sudden you get back to the rig and things are going sideways, well, then you're scrambling to figure out what and who and why. And, so it's, you know, again, just something else that kind of gets thrown into the mix. Yeah. And then, I mean, kind of going back to the rig location, and this could be a rig move or just, you know, if you're drilling on a, a multi-well pad, all the stuff on location, the layout of not only the, you know, the sack material, the backyard, all of it, where are we going to put the tanks? Now, granted, you'd say, oh, well, that's sort of a thing where, you know, that's really up to the drilling contractor and all. And yes, mm-hmm. that's all true, but... They're going to ask you what's the most efficient way, and they'd like to hear about it before they set the tanks. Yeah. And in certain situations, we find that, you know, they need to be plumbed a certain way. We need a manifold here. There's a lot of that stuff where it's really important to be around. And going back to your mention of inexperienced crews, there's a lot of that stuff where, yes, it's their job, but they don't have the experience to know that there's a more efficient way to do things. They're just trying to get the job done. Yeah. And so as a mud engineer who kind of know, has some experience or some preferences, you need to be there and help out. Yeah. It depends on the operator. It depends on how you have the account set up. There's things you can and can't do on location, but there's been times where you do help out. And whether that's helping a derrick can move hoses or whatever the case may be, I can vividly remember being outside from about 10 at night till three in the morning fixing something to make sure that we could continue with the critical path. And then, you know, so again, you're, you're taking time away from your job to help the rig, but you need it to do your job, which depending on the rig, if it's an older rig or if it's, you know, inexperienced personnel or 
say you've got a tank farm with a not so great pump and hose setup, your blown hoses or things are leaking or pumps don't work. Well, then all of a sudden you have to turn into a mechanic <laughs> and somewhat delegate. Okay. I think we need to do this. And, you know, again, making sure that you're safe and, and not going sort of outside your scope of work, but you do, everyone kind of has to help out. Yeah. And, well, I mean, it's even, I don't know, helping tear out pumps. It wasn't like I was doing the heavy lifting, Sure, but it was certainly like, wow, we really need to fix this pump right now. And it was running back and forth with parts and handing them tools or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, it was delaying my my evening mud check, which nobody was really waiting on in town. So I was okay with. Yeah. But I wasn't going to get as much sleep that night was sort of the end of it. But we had to do it to keep the operation going. And when you're yeah. a mud engineer, a mud engineer is tied to too many things to tell anybody like, well, that's just not my job. I'll be in the trailer if something related to me happens. Yeah. The whole focus is how do we keep this thing turning to the right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, and speaking of, you know, I know we've teased on it before and I hate to rag on because there are good ones out there, but like solids control hands, they don't tend to be very well trained. Many times they don't know how to run the equipment or they don't want to run the equipment. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot, especially with centrifuges, where you as a mud engineer needs to make sure it works, even though it's not your job and it's not your equipment. Yeah. And so, and addressing solids control issues, like you mentioned checking the screens, but even just noticing that something isn't working right, checking the mud weight on the effluent of the centrifuge and be like, wow, we're not actually doing anything. Right. Yeah. Um, we're throwing away product. That's it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, those kinds of things, I think we already, from displacements, but like fluid transfers and mm -hmm. all that good stuff. And then, you know, well control. I mean, we've talked about well control in as much as we say, look, a mud engineer is not the person who's going to recommend the kill mud weight. Right. We're not going to design the killing method. Right. You know, yeah. some mud engineers have been well control school and that's great. But from a, you know, legal perspective and all those other things, it's not, we have to be careful about where we get involved in that. However, we will, we should most definitely be able to help somebody check their math on a, you know, hopefully they're probably working on spreadsheets and stuff, but like, yeah. Just make sure everything jives with the plan to kill the well, get, you know, product moving if we're going to have to wait up a bunch. Right. Any of those things, any of the factors in well control become a huge logistics challenge. Yeah. And so, and if drilling fluid is one of your two barriers and you're losing it, then guess what? You're, you play a, an enormous role, even if there's all these things you, you're not allowed to run point on. Right. So anyways, and so, so I, I mean, I just think those are all things that can just happen. And so we've, you know, we've talked about sort of this like day to day of a good day. Right. We've talked about all the things that can, well, not all of them, but many of the things that can ruin your day. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you're trying to make this whole thing work or do, do your part and demonstrate value wherever you can. And so, yeah. and part of the part of the premise behind some of this discussion is, I think as we look at things like fluid automation, which I believe, you know, I think Justin, you and I say, you know, it's not, it's not an if, but a when. Yeah. I think a lot of the automation folks are like, oh yeah, you know, if we throw in a couple of sensors, we'll have, you know, we can do a mud check. And then you just tell the Derrickan, you know, send them a text or whatever. And the thing that really eats at me is I don't think that shows a clear understanding of what is expected of a mud engineer yeah. versus like a directional hand where, like you said, you know, you don't know what's going on down hole. It's all based on sensor data. So if I'm in the drilling shack or I'm a thousand miles away at a remote op center, fine. You know, my choices are to play with the sensors, 
and communicate with them from surface however I can, which I can do remotely, yeah. or come out of the hole. Right. And drilling fluid, you know, is is a bit different than that. Yeah. And so I think we've got to find a way to, you know, I think, you know, obviously automated mud mixing and some other things come into it. But when you say the value proposition or the cost savings that could be introduced, I think most of it, you'd have a hard time actually displacing a mud engineer yeah. from the picture. Yeah. And so you got to say, okay, where do I get, where do I get my gains? And and I'm not saying they're not there. I'm saying that I think they're not as obvious as they're being portrayed. Right. And I think too, just kind of tying it back to automation. And then that's really, I think the, the sort of the idea behind this episode was like, you know, because we are in an era where we're trying to automate, we're trying to, you know, digitize everything to where we can make decisions and control things from town. It may get to a point where we automate 15% of our job, but the other 75, 70% of our job is very hard to automate because there's a lot of human element involved with what we do, critical thinking and this and that, and being on location, seeing it to be able to identify what needs to be done. Again, in a hundred years from now, completely different conversation, but in our foreseeable future, in our careers, that's what it comes down to. And, you know, it, it made, you know, you can't get rid of a, you know, money engineer, just like you can't get rid of a drilling engine or a directional driller. But, you know, I think the time allocation may change. Like you yeah. may not spend as much time doing a mud check or as much time figuring out what treatments need to be done. But then you're focusing more on maybe some subsurface stuff, analyzing different data to then optimize what you are doing. And so, that you know, again, like things may shift and time allocation may change and you may allocate your efforts in other places. But I still think it would be very difficult to completely eliminate a mud engineer from location. Like I just I just can't see it. No, and I, I mean that's the thing. Look, we, we may we may laugh at this conversation, you know, years down the road. And I hope we do. But, It'd be great but, to be proven wrong. <laughs> yeah, I just I worry that there's some of the folks that are really proponents of automation who want to automate the things that actually aren't that difficult in the workflow, mm-hmm. and they're the easy things. But really, the only thing you displace is a bad mud engineer. And my question is, if if the mud engineer, you know. A good mud engineer complains about how what a pain a retort is to clean out. Yeah. A bad mud engineer doesn't run the retort. So yeah, you know, automated <laughs> measurements are but like, sure, I'd love a sensor that could do that. Like, yeah. why not? Or like real time mud weight. Like, and yeah. I know that is a thing, but instead of waiting every 15 minutes for the Derek hand to stumble across the pits and quickly do one, like well, that would be cool. I'd love it. And, uh, you know, there's obviously more incentives from a well control perspective, that sort of thing. Right. I just, I can't help but wonder if somebody says, look, for, you know, 3000 bucks a day, I can automate. Well, let's not even say that. Let's say a thousand bucks a day or whatever, you know, I can automate all of this. Like, okay, but I still have to pay for somebody to be out there Yeah. because this isn't as easy as it looks. And because it is so much of this sort of, I mean, I consider it so much part of a team and I'm going to throw rocks at directional drillers again. I feel like the directional drillers were more, I felt like they were outside looking in and a lot like, and there's one particular directional drilling company that has a very, they stay in that little cabin off the site and they only come outside to smoke cigarettes. They're typically foreign and don't communicate with anyone. And like, you never see them. And it's, it's not part of the team, but like, they still seem to be able to get the job done, whatever. That's fine. And, and that could be cultural barriers. It could be whatever. Yeah. But the flip side of it is I just don't see a mud engineer succeeding with that behavior. In right. the same way, I don't see them being automated at a rig site with that behavior. Mm. So 
good point. I just like I feel like as a manager, you have to gel so much with the rig crew to make things get make sure things get done that you end up doing things that, like you mentioned, aren't necessarily your job, right? But they help the operation moving. And if you're not there to do them, who is? Because the rig crew is already extremely busy, right? And I think too, the argument is a little bit to that is is down the road, and I'm not saying in the next year, but down the road, a lot of that communication and camaraderie may be limited due to the fact that you may have an automated rig to where all you have on location are mechanics and lease hands to clean the rig. Mm -hmm. So then in that case, as a mud engineer, you may not, if you go to the doghouse, there may not be anybody in there. (laughs) So you know what I mean? Like it's, you know, I'm talking Jetsons. Like, yeah, yeah. When we, when we get there, then maybe you'll just have robots talking to each other. <laughs> yeah. Then, then beep, I think boop, the mud engineer beep, will beep, be, yeah. you know, I assume some sort of Android cyborg <laughs> yeah, type, that... you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You can tell Matt's stance on this, which, yeah. again, is realistic. And in the future, who knows what will happen. But at least for now and in, in our careers and, you know, probably for the foreseeable future, these are things that mud engineers do. We always hope you get two weeks or 21 days to have a good, nice schedule where you can get, you know, maybe four or five hours of sleep a night, which obviously doesn't happen, but we just somehow make it work. And when we go home for those days off, if you get any, hopefully you can make up for all the sleep you haven't gotten. Yeah, I mean, you're supposed to go home tired, right? Yeah. So if you don't, then you're definitely not earning your paycheck. Yeah. So (laughs) anyways, I just thought it was one of those where I think a few of the mud engineers listening will kind of laugh at some of these things. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, you guys covered like 5% of it. Yeah. And then I I think, you know, I hope some other folks who hear it say, you know, wow, you know, hopefully even some of our folks with an AES who don't know exactly what it looks like, I'll pass along this episode because I hope you get a chance to listen and think about it. So. Yeah, that's all. I think that I think we've gone pretty long, but we I have, felt like it was it was a good conversation. Yeah, and and if Missy Elliott and the rest of the crew is still listening, we appreciate you hanging on for this long because I know it's been a long one, but it's something that I'm passionate about. Obviously, Matt is any mud engineer that's listening. Hopefully, is too. And so, with that said, everyone, please leave a review. And if you have any comments or questions or an idea for a show, hit Matt or I up on LinkedIn. Please also check out the YouTube channel. Follow AES Drilling Fluids on LinkedIn. Matt and his crew. And Addy and everyone else are pumping out great content that is extremely educational, which I think is important. And yeah, hit us up. And if you have any questions too, you can hit us up at the full line podcast at AESfluids.com. With that being said, be safe and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the flow line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.